0: please stand with me for the reading of the gospel? This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, and they prepared the Passover. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated.
1: Good evening. Although perhaps most famous for the foot-washing ceremony, the Thursday of Holy Week, sometimes known as Maundy Thursday, was the day that Jesus gave to his people the gift of what we call today the Eucharist or Holy Communion. Hence, there's this very strong emphasis on Holy Communion in our readings tonight, and that's why I'm devoting tonight's homily to the Lord's Supper. About a week ago, I was praying at my son Gus's bedtime when my tongue slipped during the Our Father. I accidentally asked the Lord to deliver us from equal instead of the correct words, the biblically, grammatically, morally correct, (laughs) deliver us from evil. After catching myself and finishing the prayer, I let my son know, Gus, your father just became his own sermon illustration. (laughs) Now, it is not immediately obvious, given our own social customs, how the behavior of a certain class of the Corinthian church were in their own way asking for deliverance from equal. Particularly when they gathered for their weekly meal Um, to remember the Lord's sacrifice. And tonight's reading should prompt us to ask ourselves what it means that this meal Jesus instituted 2,000 years ago is the Lord's Supper and not our Supper. The early comers at the Corinthian church's weekly meal had certain expectations about what they were owed as elite members of society. And acting on these expectations, consciously or probably unconsciously, Cause them to eat and drink judgment upon themselves, as Paul writes in the few verses that follow what we read earlier. So let's go over the first half of that reading from 1 Corinthians 11 again. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, for when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. According to an important scholar whose name is Wayne Meeks, uh, this passage indicates social stratification among urban Pauline churches more clearly than any other in Paul's letters. Um, To put it differently in um, more common terms, social status and prestige are on display when this community gets together for the Lord's Table. Now we have to break it down to get how this can be from just these few verses. So first thing you need to understand that in the early day of the churches, and remember, Paul's only writing two or three decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. um, What we now call the Eucharist was celebrated as part of a full dinner, just as Jesus celebrated it with his disciples. And some churches today um, try to bring back that practice a bit. Second, such a meal would need a host. Now this seems a little obvious, but we have to draw out the implications. These early churches met in houses, which meant to the host, A had a house, and probably a decent sized house, and B, could afford to feed a bunch of people. Likely, other better off Christians would bring food along as well. And whatever you think of rising inequality today, in the ancient Mediterranean world, a house and weekly banquet were the province of a tiny wealthy elite. Third, Social life in Roman society was organized around what scholars today call the patron-client relationship. The patron was a wealthy head of household. You you may have heard the term the paterfamilias, the father of the family, comes from this institution. And below him was a hierarchy of slaves and freedmen who depended on the patron's uh, material support. In return, the client owed deference and loyalty to the patron. Perhaps not coincidentally, this Roman social pattern finds a close modern analog in, a tu- in an institution with roots in southern Italy, the Mafia. In exchange for some protection money from rival families or, um, or in exchange for the um, money or some other kind of loyalty to the Mafia boss, the mob will promise protection from rival families or other forces of chaos over which they might exert some kind of control. Except in Roman times, this arrangement is not the exception. It is the norm. Fourthly, there are no days off for peasants. They are working from sunrise to sunset on the Lord's day, Sunday, just like any other day. On the other hand, there are no days on for the rich. They live off the labor of others. Thus, the people who arrive early for the meal have leisure time which necessarily means they are well-off, or at least better off. We have a passage preserved in a letter from rough contemporary, a few decades after Paul, but same general time frame, a guy named Pliny. And he actually disapproves of the way patrons would sometimes host these banquets. So Paul's not alone in expressing disapproval of the way these social practices are played out. Um, Pliny mentions how... All of, so he's invited to a meal of one of his social peers. Pliny's like the top of the top of Roman class. And he's saying how his friend had all his other friends sort of ranked by grade or station in life, so he would have his different freedmen who were present there, and that he delighted in showing different class at the tables they were served at to the degree that he had wine in little flasks, not so that they could choose between which flask they would like, but so that they were forced to drink what they were served at their table. Um, and when recounting this story, Pliny says, you know, says to when asked, you know, do you approve of this? He says, no, I don't. This is... Um, So this rubbed even some pagans the wrong way in the ancient world. So, in this light, it becomes clear that the people who have houses, verse 22, are claiming their social prerogative by eating and drinking at their leisure while the rest of the church labors away outside. By the time they rest from their toil, those who have nothing, quite literally in Greek, the have-nots, are left with scraps. Paul uses the strongest language to condemn this situation. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Therefore, when Paul contrasts their own dinner with the Lord's Supper, he is very much declaring that the meal belongs to Jesus Christ. It is the Lord's Supper, which is to say, not your supper. The words of institution that follow then take on a new meaning, for they are a declaration of Christ's ownership over the meal. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, Modern discourse, we get accustomed to thinking of the Eucharist in terms of inclusion and exclusion. Who gets to take it, who does not. And although that's closely related, that's not exactly what Paul's focus in this passage is. Rather, I'd say what Paul is getting at here would be better summed up with the term solidarity, which we could also call mutual support. It is the opposite of an attitude of me and mine versus you and yours. Christ's body is for you, which is to say, for your benefit. Likewise, the cup stands for the new covenant in Christ's blood. This covenant is not only between God and human beings, though it is of course that, but between human beings and each other. The old ways of ordering our relationships with others has passed away, and this new covenant way of relating to one another, especially within the church, now holds sway the Corinthian elite breaks the principle of solidarity in two ways. First, by violating the covenant solidarity among Christians, and second, by violating the solidarity that Christians of means are supposed to show those without means. Needless to say, we live in a very different era now. But the problem of importing our social expectations into church remains. We no longer observe patron client social arrangements as they existed in the Roman world, though perhaps they have simply evolved over time. If anything, our Christian communities must resist the modern logic of the market. It is all too easy for all of us to think as consumers rather than as covenanted worshipers. Does the music stir my feelings the way I want my feelings to be stirred? Is the air cooled nicely in the summer and kept toasty in the winter? Is the seating comfortable? Do the homilies suit my taste?" Don't answer that. Uh, I have even participated in conversations, to my own shame, about the taste of the wine and the flavor of the bread. In more advanced stages of this mindset, we even expect to be able to run the church in accordance with our consumer preferences. Our tendency towards consumerism in the church can be summed up in that most American of phrases, the customer is always right. That is not to say we aren't capable of great acts of solidarity. Um, Just this week, we've seen how tragedy can unite churches in solidarity in the aftermath of the fire at Notre Dame in Paris. The whole world watched in solidarity as the wooden beams burned and then collapsed. The crowds gathered on Ile de la Cité lamented together as they sang Ave Maria in unison. Many non-Christians confessed that they felt so devastated because that sacred space was the one place they could feel some sort of divine presence. And most astonishingly of all, the burning of a Gothic cathedral in France inspired a great many people to donate to the rebuilding of three black churches in Louisiana that were burned down from acts of arson. So, concretely, how do we ensure that our community gathers to celebrate the Lord's Supper in solidarity with those who do not? In a consumeristic age, the mere act of giving with no expectation of reciprocity, of receiving a good or service in return, can work wonders for the soul. This week, on Easter Sunday, we are donating 100% of the offering to um, Anglican aid, which is an act of solidarity with communities in Mozambique that were recently devastated by the Cyclone Idai. Anglican's website describes a city in Mozambique that is now 90% underwater. And of course, giving to your local parish is the surest way for your material means to build solidarity with your brothers and sisters right here in the same time and place that you are. I also commend to you Taking the covenant aspect of the Lord's Supper seriously by making a formal commitment to your local church. In most churches, including Incarnation, that takes the form of church membership. It doesn't need to be anything fancy, it's just an intentional act of identifying with Christ's body as it exists in this time and in this space. It is not simply about identifying with Jesus, the Bible, or with right thinking people in the abstract. which we can all do from the comfort of our own homes anyway. Rather, it's about committing oneself in the act of church membership, which means that we're standing in solidarity with God's people in our own community. And it especially means standing in solidarity with the weakest, poorest, most vulnerable members of our community. In any case, when we gather at the Lord's table tonight and hereafter, we do so as members of a new community, a new community in Christ. And this often cuts against the grain of our social backgrounds. I leave you more with questions than I do with answers. And I think Paul means to do that as well, because he says in the next few verses, after the ones we just read, that we must examine ourselves um, to judge ourselves, lest we ourselves be judged. Now, there's many different interpretations of what he's getting at. In the immediate context, I think the most obvious thing he means is ask, are we visibly standing in solidarity with each other? So examine yourselves is intentionally plural, not examine you on the inside, although I think it it can include that. But it's examine yourselves as you gather together. Is what's happening in the room looking like what was happening in the room when Jesus instituted the meal? You know, you have a tax collector, a zealot, which is to say a revolutionary. You have... A bunch of poor fishermen there, and so is that what's happening? So examine ourselves as a body. So are we doing this? Are we? Are we looking the way you know Christ's body looks as Christ intended it to look? Um, it's a difficult thing because since we don't live in a time where we. I'd like to think that we're better off now. We don't visibly show these sort of social distinctions, although you can go to older churches and you can see where the wealthy bought a pew right at the front. You know, So these things didn't die out that long ago. So perhaps it's more subtle. Perhaps it's more of what we can do within our broader community. All right, let's now pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son To unite us both to you when we were alienated from you, and to unite us together so that we could be part of one one body. God, I pray now that as um, that as our pastors wash our feet, and that as we all together come together to partake of the bread and to drink the wine, that our community would be a vision of the united church, the one body of Christ and that you will make us a sacrament, not simply the meal, but our community as a whole, to the broader world around us, that they may see what it means um, to be called members of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.